0: We turn to the book of Exodus, chapter 1. We read the first chapter, we take as our text verses 7 through 14. I won't reread those, so we pay careful attention to that section of the chapter. We hear the word of God. Now these are the names of the children of Israel which came into Egypt. Every man and his household came with Jacob. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. And all the souls that came out of the loins of Jacob were seventy souls, for Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died, and all his brethren... And all that generation. And the children of Israel were fruitful, and increased abundantly, and multiplied, and waxed exceeding mighty, and the land was filled with them. Now there arose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. And he said unto his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come on, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply, and it come to pass that when there falleth out any war, they join also unto our enemies and fight against us, and so get them up out of the land. Therefore they did set over them taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh treasure cities, Pytham and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were grieved because of the children of Israel, and the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor. And they made their lives bitter, with hard bondage, in mortar and in brick, and in all manner of service in the field. All their service, wherein they were they made them serve, was with rigor. And the king of Egypt spake to the Hebrew midwives, of which the name of the one was Shipra, and the name of the other, Puah. And he said, When do ye the office of a midwife to the... When ye do the office of a midwife to the Hebrew women, and see them upon the stools, if it be a son, then ye shall kill him, but if it be a daughter, then shall she live. But the midwives feared God, and did not as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the men children alive. And the king of Egypt called for the midwives, and said unto them, Why have ye done this thing? And have saved the men-child children alive. And the midwives said unto Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are lively and are delivered ere the midwives come in unto them. Therefore God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and waxed very mighty. And it came to pass, because the midwives feared God, that he made them houses. And Pharaoh charged all his people, saying, Every son that is born he shall cast into the river. And every daughter ye shall save alive. We read God's word that far. God bless his word to our hearts. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, God gives the gift of faith as a bond that unites us to himself by the spirit of Jesus Christ. The activity of faith is believing. Bound to Christ, we believe. And speaking of faith as an activity... Question and answer 22 of the Heidelberg Catechism directs us to the fact that the Christian believes all the things that are promised in the gospel. The gospel is set forth in history and in facts. The New Testament, as you're aware, begins with four gospel accounts of the historical Jesus. If the facts of Jesus are not true, then the doctrines also would fall away, and all the theology of Jesus is false. The Old Testament begins with five historical books concerning God's work of salvation. And because of the connection then between the facts and the history and faith, it's not surprising that the devil levels his attack against the first chapters of the Old Testament and the first chapters of the New Testament. If he can undermine the facts of those books, then the truths fall away, and salvation then is not of God. The book of Exodus reveals the truths of the gospel that are essential to salvation. This book has its theme, sin, deliverance, and thankfulness. And you understand and recognize immediately that's the threefold division of the Heidelberg Catechism. So that that same idea is set forth here, and it's the experience and testimony of every child of God. I know my misery, and knowing my misery, I know the need for a deliverer. And knowing the wonder of that deliverance, I live in thankfulness and in praise to my God. As always, the history of the scriptures is our history. And this history is a history of God and of the glory that is due unto his name. The escape, the way out, the exodus from Egypt is a picture of our spiritual deliverance. This great and glorious event is set forth through the scriptures as God's marvelous deliverance of his people. The law, as you heard read this morning, opens with that. This is the Lord, our God, who has delivered us from the bondage of Egypt And who brings us into the glory and the wonder of his spiritual Canaan. Now we look at this exodus as our exodus. This is our deliverance. And this speaks of the marvelous wonder by which God has delivered me and you. Now we understand there's types and shadows in the Old Testament. And those types and shadows have to do with the people, the places, events that are taking place. Institutions that are relevant to the wonder of God's work of salvation. The book of Exodus talks about the fact that the people of Israel are the church. Egypt is a picture of the wicked world in which we live and the bondage of sin and slavery to sin. Pharaoh is a picture of the devil as the devil afflicts the people of God and as the devil opposes Christ's church. Moses, we have, is a picture of. Christ, the deliverer, the mediator. Canaan, a picture of heaven. Now Moses wrote all five books, of the, all five of the first books of the Bible. There's a historical gap of about 300 years between the end of Genesis and the beginning here of Exodus. From the death of Moses to the birth, to the death of Joseph to the birth of Moses. There are about 430 years between Jacob's coming into Egypt with his family and then the exodus that takes place as they depart, according to Exodus 12, verses 40 and 41. You recall Joseph was brought into Egypt in order to prepare the way for the transfer of Israel to Egypt for a time. Though men, his wicked brothers, sold him to slavery, we know God had a purpose for it, and God ordained that Joseph would be brought into Egypt To prepare the place for the coming of God's people for a time, as God would allow them to increase and to live then in safety alone. During this time period, they increased significantly, according to verse 7. And the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly and multiplied and waxed exceeding mighty, and the land was filled with them. The family records of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob testify to the promise that Canaan would one day be their home. And now we look at this history under the theme, bondage in Egypt, noting the evil, but noting also the goodness, as God is present here in his sovereign love for his church. And finally, we see the gospel as it's set forth here in this history. There arose a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph, we read in verse 8. Now, Joseph was a well-regarded ruler of Egypt. He had done great things for Egypt. And you children recall the whole circumstances that surrounded his marvelous rise to power in Egypt. God bringing him out of jail, setting him before Pharaoh, giving him to know the dreams that Pharaoh had dreamt. And then God causing Pharaoh to esteem Jacob as a leader, a ruler. Joseph had done many marvelous things, giving occasion for Egypt to enjoy prosperity in the midst of a famine. And as a result, Pharaoh was appreciative of Joseph's work, and that became evident in that he regarded Joseph and his family a very privileged position, giving them the land of Goshen, enabling them to dwell then with their families and with their flocks in that place. God's purpose was to preserve Israel in isolation. For years, the people of God had been associating with the Canaanites. And as they were intermingling with the Canaanites, the generations were beginning to intermarry and troubles were occurring. The distinctiveness of the people of God was at stake. So that God opened a way now in his perfect providence to preserve his church for a time in the land of Egypt. And he would do so until the Canaanites had sufficiently filled that cup of iniquity and could be destroyed. During this time period, the Israelites flourished. Seventy souls had entered into Egypt, according to verse 5. Joseph was already in Egypt with about four more, so that the whole of Jacob's family is about 75 people. At the time of the exodus... There were 600,000 men beside women and children, according to Numbers 1, verse 46. So that would mean a total of between 2 and 3 million Israelites. For 74, 75 people to reach that total in 430 years meant that about every 25 years, they would have to double in number, which is easily possible. Now, the words of Genesis 1, verse 28, were words that instructed God's people to be fruitful and multiply. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon earth. God's people took seriously that calling. And God's blessing was upon his people. Now, we know God's blessing is upon his children wherever his children are. Despite the circumstances, despite the opposition or the pain or the suffering, God's blessing is there. Where God's children are, God is watching. And God here was upholding his church. Those blessings we know are spiritual, and those blessings have to do with the wonder by which God preserves his children despite the circumstances, despite the instances in which they find themselves. Our great God is caring for us. He cares for you. He cares for me. And he does so by giving us cancer, leading us through surgeries and sorrow, taking from us loved ones, placing us in situations of struggle and difficulty and sorrow, giving unto us temptations and hardship. Sometimes he gives spouses and children, other times he withholds those good gifts. Jehovah God, in every circumstance of life, expressing in that way his blessing toward his church. And that we understand, the bondage was a blessing. Now how was it that this bondage became a blessing? God saw the threat of Egypt. And God knew the weakness of his own people. He saw the ways in which his people were longing for and desiring the things of Egypt. A life of ease had given occasion for temptation. And as they enjoyed Egypt's life and Egypt's culture, and as they gave themselves over to the many blessings and the different experiences that Egypt offered, increasingly, though they had the bones of Joseph, and though they knew the calling to go back to the land of Canaan, that desire was not as it had been before the commands were not living in their minds as they ought to have and they began to love according to the history the flesh plots of egypt they began to enjoy it in egypt they didn't see a need to escape out of love god ordains a cure for the complacency of his children and this new pharaoh with time rises who doesn't care about Joseph, doesn't care about his family. Now just what that meant about didn't know Joseph in verse 8 is hard for us to ascertain. It's hard to imagine a king that would not know the history of Egypt. But it is possible that a different dynasty of pharaohs rose up, one that wasn't as familiar with the history, and therefore it perhaps could be that he didn't even know of Joseph. But more likely the idea there is that he didn't care about Joseph, He didn't care about Joseph or Joseph's God. And that had been evident through all of that history. The God of Joseph was on the foreground. It wasn't Joseph that knew the answer to the dreams. Joseph made clear, it was my God. My God is the one who is able to do this. It is my God who is able to preserve and to keep us. It is God who is going to give us the good years. And it is God who will take from us during the hard years, and it's God who will enable us then to be blessed during this time, so that this new king now arises, who doesn't care about Joseph, doesn't care about the God of Joseph. He's given over, as is evident from the history, to a reprobate mind. He seeks to persecute, he seeks to annihilate the Jews. Now in all of this, while God is sovereign, (laughs) ordaining this for good. God's making use of means. Pharaoh, in his sinful, selfish fear, is the one now who poses the reasons here. Behold, the, children, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come on, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply and it come to pass that when there falleth out any war, they join also unto our enemies and fight against us. And so get them up out of the land. Behind that, we know, is the devil. The devil is seeking to annihilate the Jews. He doesn't want Christ to come. He doesn't want the Savior to be realized. And so we have here Pharaoh as a tool of the devil, as well as Jehovah God overseeing all of this, working together for the good of God's children here. This is a picture of the evil world in which we live and the attempts of the wicked world to destroy. People of God and their God. The world hates God. The world hates those who are the people of God. And Jesus talks about that in John 15. They hate you because they hated me. And they hate you because of their opposition to the things of God and God's kingdom. And so a new policy now is adopted with regard to the Israelites. Instead of the privileged position previously they'd enjoyed, now they're subject to cruel bondage, bitter labor. Verse 14 talks about them working hard in order to make bricks out of clay and then using those bricks to build. And verse 11 talks here about the treasure cities that they had to build for Pharaoh. The bondage was bitter, and that bitterness is evident through this history. Now the word that's used in the Hebrew here for bitter is a word that refers to bile. When you're sick and you're vomiting, pretty soon you don't have anything left to throw up. And that taste that comes in your mouth then, when you get that bile, is a bitter taste. And that characterized now the experience of the Israelites. Their bondage is bitter. It was a bondage from which they could not escape. It was a bondage in which they were put to work. Verse 14 talks about work in the field, all manner of service in the field. They spent the days from sunup to sundown laboring hard for the well-being of the Egyptians. And there was no profit in it for themselves. They still had to do all their own work yet on the side. Taskmasters were set over them in order constantly to watch over them. And they were constantly under that watchful eye. And they could not escape those cruel taskmasters. This is a picture, beloved, of the spiritual bondage and depravity that is ours in Adam. As those who are found in Adam, sin takes hold of us. And sin holds us in bondage. There's no way of escape from that bondage apart from the wonder of God's grace and God's goodness. And God would deliver. God would give his children freedom from that bondage. The wicked despise God. Pharaoh again, a picture here of the wicked and of the devil. Who is God that we should obey him? That's the attitude of Pharaoh now. Who is this God that we should respect him or respect the people that he has in this land? Is what he says really meaningful? Is it really significant? Pharaoh represents the world and the prince of this world, the devil. And he takes the lead then now in despising God and despising the people of God by persecuting God's children. He's greedy. He has a huge pool of labor here at his disposal, and he wants to make use of them in order to profit himself, and he can work them as hard as he wants. He doesn't care if they die. They're disposable. There's others that he can labor, work with behind the ones that pass. His economy is being built on the backs of these slaves, and they're serving now his well-being. So he's Fearful of them on the one hand. On the other hand, he really doesn't want to let them go because of the purposes that they can utilize for his well-being. Pharaoh's problem ultimately is not with Israel. It's with their God. He knows that there's a power behind them. And Joseph testified to that power behind them. And now as he's seen them increase and flourish, he realizes that power. Now, we know that all men know that there's a God. And all men know that that God is to be worshipped and served. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Because a fool tries to go contrary to that which is evident, that which is obvious. Out of fear, what do wicked men do? They deny God, and then rulers try to persecute the people of God. They think by doing that, they would be able then To erase God and annihilate Him out of their minds. But history shows the failure of that activity. This world hates God, it persecutes the Christians. Why does it do it? The world wants you to love the world, the world wants you to pursue the things that are of the world, the devil wants you to seek Him. He wants to re-identify you. He wants to push God to the side, and he wants you to be in his service. That's the world that you and I are living in. That's the world in which we're raising our children. A world that's anti-God, anti-Christ, and is given over to the pursuit of sin. When we preach the word, and when we stand for what is right, we will be opposed. And the bolder we stand, the more that opposition will come upon us. We need to preach the word with boldness. We need to live bold, godly lives. But as we do so, we expect opposition. And that opposition is evident here in this history. Egypt represents the hostile world. A world that hates the saints. A world that hates the church. Now this is a picture of what sin is all about. As a picture of the world, Egypt... Is beautiful. Egypt was a beautiful land. The place where the Israelites dwelt in the land of Goshen was gorgeous. It was lush, there was grass, they had water that was running. There was much that was alluring in the world of Egypt, and there was much that was luring the Israelites into fellowship and communion with the Egyptians and that way of life. There were temptations to seek the things of Egypt, to pursue the ways and the walk of Egypt and the Egyptians. And the Israelites were tempted to become comfortable increasingly in the world. Egypt becomes now the oppressor, and it becomes the way of sin and the way of the heathen. We're not to love this world because all that's in the world is not of the Father. The lust of the flesh, the pride of life, the lust of the eyes. That's what characterizes the world in which we live. Now, Pharaoh is the prince of that world. And Pharaoh loves not God, nor the people of God. Pharaoh represents the devil. And what does the devil do? The devil, according to 1 Peter 5, as a lion goes about seeking whom he may devour. And you children know how a lion hunts. How a lion operates. A lion is ruthless. A lion is cruel. A lion is sneaky. That's what the devil's doing. The devil is posing in attempts to try to bring us down and to try to bring us down by temptation. We need to be afraid of the devil. We need to watch for the devil. We need to be running away from those temptations. We need to stand ready with the word, which is the only thing that the devil is fearful of. And as we bring the word, and as we stand with the word, we then lean on Christ and his power to preserve and to keep us. Now, Pharaoh makes men do his bidding. That's the desire of the devil. The devil wants us active in the things of his kingdom. And that's what Pharaoh was doing here. He wanted the Israelites building his treasure cities, establishing his wealth, building up Egypt, The devil is seeking to use men to build his glorious, wicked kingdom. He has a wicked agenda. His agenda is contrary to God and contrary to his church. And he engages in devilish wisdom and devilish craftiness in order to try to establish that kingdom. And he wants us to be assisting him. He wants us to be engaged in that labor that will build an anti-Christian kingdom. Notice how Pharaoh speaks in verse 10. Come on, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply. Now the wisdom of which Pharaoh speaks there is not a godly wisdom, it's a devilish wisdom. It's a wisdom that is of this world. That wisdom fails. And we know how the devil failed again and again through history. The devil thought he could destroy the people of God. And how the devil tried through history to bring about their destruction. But every time, God used it for the good of his church. The chief attempt being the cross. The devil thinking that he could destroy the Messiah. He could bring about his defeat. Whereas God sovereignly ordained that event for the establishing of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And for the salvation of his church, so that none would perish. But every last one of them would be given life everlasting on the basis of his perfect sacrifice. The devil thinks he's destroying God and his people. The devil thinks he can establish this glorious kingdom. When in reality, God is using all that he's doing to serve his glory and to serve his purpose. Now again we see the natural state of man depicted in this history as those who are dead in sin and trespasses captive to the devil who's controlling the things of this world they're in bondage and in bondage they're unable to be that which God created men and women to be image bearers of God living for his glory instead they're pursuing the things of the flesh Pursuing the ways of sin. And all men are in bondage to the devil in such a way they are unable to even see that bondage, unable to even identify it or desire a way out of it. So serious that bondage is. By nature, we're like the devil. The lies of the devil, we hear and we pursue them and we want to do them. And that's why the book of Romans talks again and again about slaves to sin bondage to sin. Sin controls the heart. It controls the mind. It controls the will. And we are inclined then not to live unto God, not to pursue his glory, but the ways of sin. For all the good that people may think to do, if it's not performed by true faith, if it's not done according to the will of God and for his glory, it's no good at all. And we know that natural man can do nothing That is pleasing to God. There's no freedom. There's only bondage. And such bondage is the bondage and slavery of sin. This is a decisive picture of the depravity of man. Now that old man is with us yet till we die. And this old man shows itself in the anger that sometimes we display. The selfishness, the impatience, the laziness, the complaining, the temptations... That's evidence that we were brought forth as slaves of sin. Even though Christ broke that slavery, the effects still remain for God's children. So that this history is not only a picture of slavery to sin, but also the continued effect of sin in the life of God's children. God's children yet wrestle and do battle with those attempts of the devil. These are a people who have been chosen by God. They're pictured now as being in bondage. Now of ourselves, we are enslaved to sin, by nature, depraved, impossible to live in any freedom apart from the wonder of God's goodness and God's grace. God graciously gives that exodus. He gives regeneration. He gives us life from above. And he gives us to see the wonder of a redeemer. Isaiah 61 talks about the heart of the gospel as deliverance from this bondage of sin and from the prison of death. And as Isaiah talks about that wonder, it does so in connection with the coming of the Messiah. What will the Messiah come? What message will he bring? The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. Such is the wonder of the Messiah and his work. And Isaiah 61 speaks of the wonder. Israel must be rescued from the coffin of Egypt. They would die in their sins if left to themselves. Could Moses deliver them? Moses is set forth as the typical deliverer, but yet Moses fails, pointing to the reality that it's only through the Messiah, only through Jesus Christ, that any deliverance from evil and its bondage are able to take place. And God's sovereignty over Pharaoh is shown in that beautiful psalm, Psalm 105, Psalm 105 accounts the various history, and it gets into the history of the Israelites in Egypt, demonstrating God's hand every step of the way. He was the one that was turning the heart of Pharaoh. He was the one that was causing this bondage. Now that causes us to ask a lot of questions, does it not? How can this be, and what does this mean? God is chastening his people. God is afflicting them in order to deliver them. It reminds us of this. God's way is in the furnace. God's way is in the lion's den. God's way is the way of taskmasters. But God is a God of exodus. God is a God of creation. He's also the God of the serpent. He's also the God that rules all things with regard to the promise of a deliverer, the seed of the woman, Sin used by God as his way to direct us to the cross and the wonder of deliverance. We see the misery in order that we might know the need for a deliverer and that we might see the marvelous goodness of our God. That goodness of God is on the foreground here in the midst of this misery and bondage. In verse 12, the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. People of Egypt were, as we noted, in dread of these people, the Israelites, and their God who is behind them. But notice though the Israelites were afflicted, and though Pharaoh came down hard on them, what was the effect? They multiplied. Imagine the fear, the anger, the terror of Pharaoh. He's trying to bring about their destruction. He's trying to bring about their demise. And what's the fruit? They're getting stronger. How will he deal with that? We see, beloved, beautifully here, God is in the midst of them. She shall not be moved. Jehovah God is with them. And God will make of Abraham's seed as the sand at the seashore, as the stars in the sky. Persecution, hardship, are used by God for the good of his church. Now, so difficult that is for us to experience in our own lives. But again and again, the Bible reminds us of that. Affliction is for my profit. The hardship, the persecution, the troubles, the problems that come in my life, God uses them for my growth. They're expressions of his love, so that despite your or my current situation, we are able to confess God, his love, his goodness, and the fact that Jehovah God has set his name upon me, and therefore, as his, all will be well. We see, beloved, the marvelous love of God here in this history toward his people. Why would God show love and favor toward a people that were weak and sinful, that were inclined to remain in Egypt. We see God here commanding life out of death. And that's the marvelous wonder of God's goodness. Pharaoh comes and Pharaoh says, Die! And he tries to kill the Israelites. But over against Pharaoh is Jehovah God saying, Live! And we think of Ezekiel 16, that beautiful passage where God comes upon that little child that is in her blood left to die and God comes and God says live and the fruit of that is that that child lives and that child flourishes and that child becomes the bride of Jesus Christ. God comes to his people and God not only upholds them, God causes them to flourish. He blesses them and he does so for the glory and for the honor of his own name. Now this wonder takes place for every one of God's elect children. God's elect children find themselves at times in distress, in hardship. We find ourselves at times walking unrepentantly in sin. But we have a God who pursues us. He pursues his children with goodness. He pursues them in love. He will not allow them to continue unrepentantly in that sin. And God says, live! And the power of the gospel is such that God's goodness transforms. God's goodness rescues. It works repentance. It works sorrow. It causes them to see the wonder of his grace and his goodness toward them. We backslide for a time. We have our ways of sinning, our pursuing of our own will. We set our heart on the things of this world and we find this world appealing and we continue then in the lusts and the pleasures here below. Pretty soon we become like the Israelites. We're marching with the world and we find ourselves enslaved to temptation, enslaved to circumstances that involve addictions. God in his love delivers The exodus comes after bondage. God is jealous for his people, and that jealousy is seen here. He will not allow Pharaoh to dictate things. This is his people, and he is the God who has put his own name on them, and he will preserve and he will keep them. This is the God who has spoken promises, glorious and marvelous promises, with regard to his church and with regard to his children. So, beloved, we don't wait to see Christ present here. Christ is the word of promise by which Israel is in Egypt and by which God will preserve and keep them. And what is that promise? I am with you. I am with you. And I will never leave or forsake you. That which would be evident later in the temple and the tabernacle, that which is the wonder of God's goodness in Jesus Christ. God sees his people in his son. And he sees his son dwelling and living in them by his spirit. He called his son out of Egypt. He calls his children out of their sin and brings them to see his goodness and his mercy. So that here we have the people of God depicted as in bondage, and God is in the midst of them. They're going the way of the Egyptians. They're being persecuted by Pharaoh. We're all prone to that way. That's the way of our nature. We complain, we murmur. This is what it's like to live according, to live with that old man with whom we do battle until we die. And this is why 1 Corinthians 10 talks about the fact this history is given for our admonition, it's given for our instruction. They had entered into Egypt as the people of God, and yet too soon they were becoming comfortable with the ways of Egypt. So the issue is not just a new king, it's not just a new pharaoh, it's also a new generation in Israel who arose who are not trusting in God. And that comes out again and again throughout this history and in connection with their deliverance and after. They wanted to go back. They despised Moses and Aaron for bringing them out of the land. They wanted the leeks and the garlics. They wanted the life that Egypt had given and had offered. Apart from the grace of God, beloved, so are we. We go back to the ways of the world. Constantly we're going back to the ways of the world and the way of sin. But how is God toward his people? How is God with his sinful people? God will not cast them off. God will not cast you off. God does not cast us off. God is faithful to his promise. He pursues his glory in and through those whom he has chosen from all eternity and through whom his Son has secured their salvation. He pledged his love in election. And that's the answer, is it not? The doctrine of election. The doctrine of salvation by which God not only chooses to himself a people preserves and keeps them, delivers them in Jesus Christ, and brings them to the glory that awaits. What is the possibility of the exodus of God's people from Egypt and from their sin? God, his goodness. The fact that God gives a savior. And Christ is represented, as we noted, in Moses, the great deliverer, pointing to Jesus. Jesus. Beloved, do you believe that? Do I believe that? We are the people of the exodus. We have been delivered from that bondage to sin. And we are called to live now as that people, to show forth the praise of our God. So easy it is to go back to those ways of sin. We fight against those perverse thoughts, that sinful anger, those lusts. But constantly we remind ourselves, you are not the people of bondage. You are the people of the exodus. You are those who have been redeemed. And Jehovah God, in his mercy, is preserving and keeping you. We are in the service of the king, the king of kings. That's the gospel that's evident here in this text. The devil tries to depict the bondage as sweet. And doesn't he do that? He tries to depict bondage to sin as sweet. He comes to us with temptations. And what does the devil say? You can do whatever you want. Live it up. No one else can tell you how to live. That's what true freedom is. That's what true joy is. As the master of your own life, you can indulge in every kind of activity that you want. Pursue your passions. That's liberty. That's freedom. And the devil wants you to believe that life in the kingdom of darkness is freedom. Life in the kingdom of darkness is joy and pleasure. He promotes that lie. He tries to get men and women to latch on to that lie. This is what our college students hear often. They go to college, and what do they hear? Get away from the strictness of your parents. You don't have to worry about the rules that previously prevailed in your homes. You're on your own now. You can enjoy true freedom now. You can enjoy what it really is like to live now. And you can pursue what you want to do and pursue your own desires. And if you now want to identify as something different than what previously you did, go ahead. It's all about your joy, your freedom. And in that way, there's true pleasure. What a lie, beloved. The truth is that bondage is bondage. And sin is bondage. And the bondage is bitter. It's that which is like the taste of bile in your mouth. It doesn't give you peace. It doesn't give you joy. It's that from which you cannot be delivered of yourself. You need the grace of God and the wonder of God's grace. Because what's the reality? In our sin, we don't even want to be delivered. We don't even desire a way out. We're content to stay in that sin. And we see a bit of that history here. How content the Israelites, to a degree again, were to remain in that bondage. There's nothing worse in all the world than to be enslaved by the devil. And that's how we have to look at our sins. That's why we hate sin. That's why we flee sin. For the child of God, delivered by God's grace, we will not be brought into that slavery. We believe that. God will not allow us, again, to be enslaved by the devil. God will always give us that way out, that way of escape through Jesus Christ. But the devil constantly is tempting to do so. And so we hate sin. We flee from sin. Sin can still bring us into temporary bondage for a time, addiction brings us into that bondage. The devil tries to use fear, he tries to use tactics to keep us in that. He's greedy. He tries to get as many as he can into that kingdom. But thanks be to God. We are directed to the one who bore our afflictions, who bore the wrath of God on our behalf, and who gives to us that deliverance, Jesus Christ. He not only took upon himself the sins of which we were guilty in Adam, he takes upon himself the sins for which we're guilty every single day. God directed the circumstances of Egypt to show salvation is by grace alone. And that's what God does in our lives as well. God shows us in a very humbling fashion. Your salvation is not of yourself. You are weak. If left to yourself, you would perish everlastingly. Salvation is all of God. It's all of God's grace. When Israel is delivered, there's only one thing they can do. Praise and thank God. They didn't send those plagues. They didn't cause that water to be parted. It was obvious beyond any doubt. Their exodus was all of God. And to him alone was all glory. And beloved, so it is for you and for me. We couldn't cause one who is God and man to be born of a virgin. God does that which is impossible of men in order to accomplish the wonder of our salvation. And God raises up Moses as one who will fail, in order to demonstrate the one who is our mediator, who will not fail. Remember, beloved, the chastening hand of God. God's chastening hand of love is on his children. The punishment's been removed. That's taken by Jesus Christ. But yet, there is that chastening hand, There is the trouble. There is the affliction that we experience here on earth. Pharaoh sees the Israelites, and Pharaoh notices them. And he notices the fact of their increase. That's striking. As the world looks at us, and as the world sees us, the devil not only, but the world also notices us. They notice the fact that God is with us. That we are a people who are not alone but we are indwelt by the spirit of Jehovah God. It's easy to try to hide from the world, to try to retreat. But God calls us to be faithful, not to hide our witness, to shine. And as we do so, as we live unto him, as we seek to be faithful in the midst of this world, we will be afflicted. Persecution will come upon us. The devil will try to destroy our lives, take our jobs, persecute us. But what's going to be the result? God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will preserve his own. We know the joy of God's care, God's preservation. And God works a gratitude in our hearts. He works a thankfulness as we know the sweetness of his goodness and of his grace, which is undeserving. Beloved, there's no, nothing more precious than to know it's not the devil, it's Jesus who is my Lord. He I serve, and in that is true joy and happiness. In the service of Jehovah God, in Jesus Christ, there is freedom, there is joy, there is the wonder of salvation, and there is the hope of life everlasting. Jehovah God, in the furnace of affliction, with his people. Jehovah God, who will not leave his children, who will not forsake them, but who dwells with them and in them by his word and by his spirit, he will prosper us and our children. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, we thank thee for the wonder of thy love and thy faithfulness. Even as the Israelites, sorely afflicted, Pharaoh unleashing his wrath and hardened heart upon them, we see the wonder of thy goodness, thy mercy. And we see the same, Lord, in our lives. How wondrous thou dost deal with us, not as we deserve, but by the wonder of grace. And we pray cause that we might see the joy of our salvation, the hope that is ours in Christ, and that we might live as those who pursue his will, out of gratitude, magnifying and exalting his name. Amen.